Hello and welcome to the podcast where we shine a light on the complexities and challenges surrounding the importance of human behaviour on cybersecurity and compliance. That's right, we're talking about people being at the centre of information security and data protection and the challenges of engaging users to create change in their behaviour. This is Beyond the Firewall. What we're going to do is turn our gaze to the role that email plays in social engineering. Now, love it or hate it, I don't think it's money that makes the world go round. It is email. Email's been kicking around in its current form since 1971, and we have Ray Tomlinson to thank for that. He wrote the Sund Message program. They didn't like vowels in the olden days. Sund Message. And uh, that first used the ubiquitous at symbol that's been used in email ever since. I still remember sending my first email in 1994, my first internet email, and now it's estimated that 333 billion emails are sent every single day. And of those, it said around half a spam and around three billion of them are scam and phishing messages. Zone into that for a second. Three billion emails every single day purporting to be from somebody that they are not with some kind of malicious intent. Now, how many of those land and fool the intended recipient? That's not so clear. But what is evident, I think, is that there is a problem, a big problem with email. So joining me today to share his outlook on email is our resident Hotmail, Metacompliance CEO and author of Cybersecurity Awareness for Dummies, Robbie O'Brien. Hello, Robbie. Hi, David. Well, it's good to be here today. Email is a key piece of the arsenal in social engineering. And for me, social engineering is about magic, isn't it? You know, you see those magic shows on the TV and and what they're doing is sleight of hand and exploiting people's biases, their mindsets, their state of their emotions. And, and social engineering, I think, is the is is the modern equivalent of, of a con artist. But I mean, oh, the problems that they're causing businesses, the problems that they're causing government. Um, so looking forward to getting into how email is the root of all evil, maybe, for all our digital woes at the minute. Email is the root of all evil. You know, on, on a recent show, we uh, named and shamed how many apps we hadn't had updated on our phones. I'm not going to do the same today with uh, the, the number of unread emails in our inbox. Well, let's see. Let's see how we get on. But joining us today is a special guest, someone who's very well qualified to talk about email. Uh, he showed the world just how easy it can be to slide into the email inboxes of high-profile people in power. It is security expert, social engineer and famed email prankster, James Linton. Thank you for joining us, James. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. I thought I was going to get called something like Robert. Robert got quite a nice name. I thought you might call me the, the corrupt attachment or... Uh, so, no, don't call me that, actually. That, that from might, one hot mail to another hot mail? People might pick I up don't, on it I and don't start know. using it. And I, will, yeah, <laughs> I never think things through, as we'll find out, but yeah. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, how about we kick off today with that? Because, James, your, your story, I think, is an absolutely fascinating one. And how you got from where you were working as a web 
designer to mm. where you are now. It was around about five years or so ago, five or six years ago. You made some waves, fair to say, in infosec circles and looking at the press clippings way beyond kind of like the little circle here, simply by sending some cheeky emails. So how about we kick off? Tell us how that all began. Well, it began from definitely not a a criminal intent, um, unless you call my jokes criminal. It was the office joker, but it was just kind of developing that and, and taking that into the inbox. Practical jokes was something I like to do, and it, it just seemed the natural next step. And I think that email, the thing that I noticed, and there was almost an epiphany moment for me where, um, because I was involved in user experience and design, I'd gradually noticed the reduction of kind of technical information like email addresses and stuff. And if you logged into an app, it might now say, hi, Daisy, instead of, you know, being sort of very kind of unfriendly, I guess. So at watching design move that way, I realized that we were sort of relating with technology, especially interfaces in, in, in a lot more of a trusting way, I think, because we, we saw these things as things we could trust because they seem more personal. And I just kind of latched on to the fact that impersonation is incredibly easy over email. I think that was the ultimate thing looking back that I'd noticed because there's no voice to get right. There's no facial features to match. And over time, people have an inbox. And if somebody keeps turning up in that inbox, the, the only noticeable thing that's actually there is a display name and something they've written. So if those things are consistent over time, we, we start to trust it and we trust it in the context that we're seeing it, which is the inbox. So trust is kind of built from the two things there. It's with the, mm. the actual real relationship with the person that's built outside of that. And then there's the relationship with seeing them appear in this, you know, this meeting zone um, over and over and over again. So I guess I thought, well, what would I technically need to spoof up something that was pretending to be at, at the time the ceo of, of the place that i worked at and it was you know just a free gmail account because i just ran through in my head and thought well what's the thing that's most noticeable about this free account that makes it look not real and that was the actual email address and i thought well yeah. under what circumstances would i check that and at the time i knew it was hardly any circumstances so i thought right it really has to be out there for them to not look at that. So all I've got to focus on now is, is is making sure that what I write has enough truth to it. It doesn't kind of rattle people. So I started, I created this Gmail account and you, you never feel like IT at work has got more of a, an eye on you than when you're creating a fake Gmail account in your, <laughs> your CEO's name. I would not recommend it, but I think the excitement of that was half the fun of it, I guess. I kind of knew it was dangerous and it did feel like having a live hand grenade, like I might accidentally just email the, the CEO directly with this thing as him. <laughs> you know, it was it was that kind of tentative as I sort of typed in, double checking that I was using the yeah, right yeah. account and sending to the right person. It, it felt like I was about to cut the wrong way on a, on a bomb. <laughs> and yeah, just before I knew it, I just thought I, I can kind of write anything. And my, my boss at the time, he... He was Scottish. He had a, a particular way of writing. It was quite concise, as, as many CEOs are. They, you know, they're not often very verbose when they write, and I knew that I could use a few sort of anchors or phrases that he used. But then, mm. in between that, sandwich it with something that he definitely wouldn't have said. 
And the first one just went out to a close friend at work, one that was the target of many of my jokes, um, because I wanted to kind of contain the <laughs> contain the fallout if there wasn't yeah. any. There was a little bit of self-preservation going on. And I just sent him this email saying, you know, if you've got a solicitor, bring them after work and come and meet in the meeting room or something like that. It was quite nasty. <laughs> I knew you could take it. I knew I was there literally, you know, with the kind of dampened blanket a few feet away. If he, if he did go into a panic, I'd kind of throw it over him and, and, and stop his panic. As it turned out, he doesn't check his email that often. We were designers. We had two screens and mm. he just never checked it. And then eventually I just twigged on it and I was just looking at the back of his head and I just kind of saw as he scanned Reddit because it was only short. And then the second he'd finished, he went straight round to me, looked me in the eye and I just kind of cracked up and so the first attempt didn't work i was rumbled straight <laughs> away but it kind of showed that i'd, I'd jumped in a bit sooner thinking I'd, I'd, I'd maybe been a little bit heavy-handed with what i'd said but i think the the bug bit i, I certainly <laughs> certainly did it a few more times <laughs> but i think that the, the time that was the most panic inducing at work and this is the problem of pretending to be somebody who you have no control over my ceo would come back into the building from a meeting and i wouldn't expect that and all of a sudden i was speaking to somebody in the office as him with the real person wandering around it was like these time traveling movies where you're not meant to you know meet the the older version of yourself because bad yeah, things yeah. will happen and i think that was very much true <laughs> in this case so the thing that i found really interesting as you were telling that first part was about actually your background in user experience design trying to send a user send a viewer send whatever on a journey through a site whether that's for sales conversion or, or, or whatever the purpose is you could also say that's some kind of engineering that that's user engineering that's user experience engineering which maybe isn't yeah. too many steps away from social engineering <laughs> so quickly how did it go from being this kind of office pranks that went far yeah. enough for you to feel a bit uncomfortable but enjoy that adrenaline rush and maybe feel a bit of that potential power to the kind of media storm that kicked off that was all done and dusted at work completely unrelated to that i'd had a, a falling out of my bank over a matter and it had gone to the financial ombudsman and it was going back and forth and it, it looked like i wasn't my view on it wasn't going to win through and i was quite accepting of that you know if things reach a natural conclusion you've tried everything you can you kind of give up but i still felt a bit wronged by it i guess and it, you know, it's very easy for a corporation at a certain stage to kind of ghost you and, and just sort of, you don't exist anymore. You, you know, you're just shouting into the void. <laughs> it was kind of a little bit like me chaining myself to their gates in a way and having a mini protest, but doing it digitally and doing it by basically tricking the CEO of the bank, which had had the falling out with, which is Barclays, fairly well documented at the time. 8pm one night, I was watching something on Netflix and I saw it as their annual general meeting on a news um, mm. article and that just triggered it. I thought, oh, I think I remember saying that I'd be back or something. I had a very kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back when we, we kind of finished our argument with this, not argument, but di dispute with the CEO. But I'd forgotten about it and this resurrected that. And the thing that seemed obvious to do, <laughs> obvious to me, and maybe not to everyone, was to resurrect this tactic that I used. I didn't know if it was going to work or not, but mm. before I knew it, I was 
use my new tactic, which was to, I guess it's the open source research side of this, which was to quickly scan the news article and look for the character I was going to be. And it mentioned the, the chairman in there, did a quick kind of run through of how a chairman might have to act. And the dynamics seemed good. It seemed like it would be a candid conversation. You know, if it was a customer, he probably wouldn't be as say things that it was revealing. I didn't know what I wanted him to say at that point. I just knew that I wanted a kind of on a level conversation and, and to possibly yeah. make him look a bit, a bit silly, I guess. So yeah, I, I quickly set up a Gmail account in the, the chairman's name, fired off this email, put my phone down and then got reply. And it, it was from the CEO. And at that point you, you're faced with a dilemma because it's like, has he rumbled me? Is he trolling me? Is this going to threaten me in any kind of legal way? You kind of have to make a judgment on the reply and judge its authenticity, I guess, and decide whether you really have tricked that person or if they're now just winding you up or something like that. The thing was, I knew I was definitely speaking to him. And this is the thing about email that it's quite easy to drop into somebody and know that you're definitely speaking to that person because the street that he lived on was the, you know, the domain name of the bank. And his name is is kind of his name. So unless he yeah. tried to blag somebody else out his name, it would have been hard for him to dispute that I was actually talking to him there. Sure. But I, I kind of judged that it, it seemed quite genuine, like a genuine response. So I quickly replied to that and went back and forth, back and forth. And I put my phone down. And I just thought, wow, that was like kind of amazing. I felt like I'd really I guess tricked him and it just naturally seems the next step to go, I must tell everyone that I can about this. So the next day I, I set up the email prankster Twitter account and uploaded the, the exchanges there and I had no followers. So nothing happened. So I started reaching out to a few journalists and mm -hmm. somebody at the financial times went, hang on a minute, is this real? And I just sent him the login details to the, the email account and he obviously could verify it instantly. Yep. Um, and then it was kind of published and then other publications started picking up on it and other some people are high-fiving me in the office at work and stuff. And <laughs> it was really exciting. And I guess at that point, the, the buggered bit, I was like, I'm, I seem to be really good at something or sort of good at something that I don't really know what it is, but can I do more of it? And the, the more of it seemed to be following a theme. And that theme was just to hit more banks here. So did the Bank <laughs> of England... That was successful. Then Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley. And then after that, I thought pressure was starting to mount to, to, to stop. Obviously, I was having a whale of a time, but who I worked for <laughs> and then my parents and stuff, they were not quite as risk happy as me, I would say. So they, you know, they, they, they could see things in a different way than I could, I think. I, I kind of saw it as I feel like I'm building something here. Maybe this will, you know, explode into something new. And looking back, it did because otherwise I wouldn't be sat here now talking about email security. So yeah, yeah, I was right, but I think it, <laughs> it could have easily been gone the other way and, and turned out to be the worst thing I ever did. So I think the only thing that stopped it becoming so bad was it, it sort of coming to a head and, and, and fizzling out because my identity got out and stuff and that allowed me to pivot. But obviously after the banks, I then, and all the pressure to stop, I thought, what can I do that's a bit bigger than this? And the White House was seeing the next obvious thing. Why not? To do. Why not? It's, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I was, I was, you know, up to my neck in it at that point. I thought, you know, one more thing isn't, isn't going to do any harm. And did it? 
Yeah, that really blew the doors off. That got me suspended. <laughs> <laughs> My computer got put in a giant plastic bag and taken off for testing. There was nothing on it. And looking back, I, I do feel sorry for where it worked to a point that they were put through, I, I guess, some amount of trauma in, in so much as having to deal with the fact that somebody who is, um, you know, part of their employment had, had done these things and created all the attention on where he worked and why mm. he was doing this and where he was doing it from. I think they thought, right, we'll just check there's no, you know, horrible viruses and malware and stuff. Yeah. But I didn't know any of that. The only thing that was on my computer was screen grabs of the conversations I'd had with people. You know, I was able to create an email account. I wasn't able to know how to do crime and stuff. That never crossed my mind. And I never used okay. a VPN. I never kind of you know, really try to hide myself in any way, because I don't know, I just didn't feel that in a, in a court of law, it would be something that, you know, I pretended to be somebody and I invited somebody to a party that didn't seem like something that was. But you had created quite a calling card for what has ended up being your new career there. And the points that also stuck out to me were also how without the malicious intent, but also without really expertise. There was little to no technical expertise that was required in order to gain the level of access that you gain. There was no VPNs in here. There's no black hat stuff. It was just using a bit of intelligence, using a bit of understanding how humans interact and what some of the gaps are in terms of security there. And, uh, and Robbie, I, I want to come to you and say, you know, what are your reflections on James's story? What can we learn from that as a kickoff, really, in terms of email security and maybe how easy it is pretty much for anyone who sets their mind to it to start launching these campaigns either individually or as part of an organized criminal activity. You know, the reason why we're talking to you here is that the origins of this was to have a bit of a laugh. And and I think that's leads you in. You you, you get a you get a laugh from from something and you, you take it a bit further, you get another laugh and suddenly there's a point where you Maybe you're not getting the laughs anymore, but you just think that you just need to modify it a little bit more and and and, and you'll find a new vein of, of humor, so to speak. And I think that's what makes it relatively innocent. For me, there was a couple of things that came out of it. First of all, it's really spearfishing because you had to put yourself into the mind of the chairman as in what is the construct of the email that would get, would get a, a response. And I also thought, it was interesting. The first one you tried, you went too heavy handed and mm. your mate twigged it right away, turned around to you and went, that was you because you'd gone too far. And therein lies the seeds of email destruction. If the first thing coming through seems innocuous, you know, it sort of slides by, maybe not even requiring a comment, doesn't require any comment, but the fact that someone passes it by and, and doesn't do anything, it, it's now on their, on their outlook inbox and scrolling down and then the next one and what you're doing is you're you're building up trust because once someone engages with that, with that email and they haven't done the diligence to find out is this person from where they're from and you know do the usual red flag email uh, diligence in my opinion you never go back and do it you'll never go back and check the third email and go is this really for real, unless the person again over extends their hand, right? So I think that's the thing that strikes me here is a the basics will always work. 
and B, if you do your research and what's being delivered to the recipient has a basis of truth. That's the key is they have a basis of truth, basis of credibility. And you build from that, like that is very, very difficult to resist and, and, and defend against. Because what I think everybody forgets is we are all living our lives at warp speed. We are flying through everything. Yeah. My biggest delight in the day is deleting emails, seeing how many emails I can delete. I'm scanning the subject lines to see, right, and yeah. I leave that unread and, uh, and I get rid of the whole thing. And then I'm left with the things that, that the emails that I believe that are pertinent to me. But I've already committed to those emails, you know, so it's 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 a pervasive technique. And, and I think there's some really valuable lessons in this discussion. It's interesting you talk about landing with a light touch, because that was something that I really started to play around with over time and something that I was noticing. And, and in my simplistic view, I just saw it as everyone in the head has an idea of what a scam looks like and what a scam doesn't look like. So I'd always think, well, let's do my shopping and, and, and pick the, the components that I want from the things that don't look like a scam. And a lot of them are very normal things and, and not necessarily normal things that you would just say, but normal things that happen. And, and one of the things I actually caught out Morgan Stanley with, I nearly caught out um, Levy, the uh, technical director of the NCSC with this, but yeah, he no caught me out just, but it, it worked several times. And at Morgan Stanley, I knew I'd already, Trick Goldman Sachs and Citigroup in a kind of 24, 48-hour period. It was it was quite tight. And then um, sort of getting caught up in it, I thought, right, I'm going to try and trick Morgan Stanley's CEO. But I did think at the back of my head, maybe he's going to be quite aware. So I need to be as unlike a prankster scam as possible. And I thought, well, what normal things happen in an inbox? And I thought, well, sending an email in error is a normal thing. So I thought, right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to... Choose my character. It was Alistair Darling. Surprisingly, he was on Morgan Stanley's uh, wow. thingies. So I, I attached a picture of Alistair Darling to this email from Alistair Darling saying, please use this in the article, uh, send me a copy when it's done. And I sent that directly to the CEO of Morgan Stanley. Knowing that I had this other email ready queued up, I was literally going to send a second after. Technically, it wouldn't make sense it would go that soon, but the second email was apologizing for sending this email in error. So in my head, I knew that he'd received this thing that was, you know, people do send stuff in error. And I made sure that the uh, journalist's name was, was similar or had a, a similar surname to CEOs as well. So there would, there would be mm, a few biases yep. there to build that, oh, this is why that's happened. He replied to that saying, oh, oh, no problem. It's a nice picture anyway. And I knew he kind of, he was on the hook there. Yeah. That, that bit of normal behavior and just using those two emails it would be trickier to trick him having tricked so many people so recently. But I thought this is the best way of kind of protecting that by doing this thing. And then we had a, a conversation. It actually ended up with resulted in me sending over a whole article, which I wrote on the spot on my phone about risk aversion. He said it was great, <laughs> a very good personal anecdote to highlight risk or something. And I felt really happy with that. I felt like I was genuinely working for Morgan Stanley at the point and then had congratulations. Um, <laughs> Congratulations for the CEO. So I was very method. I was very into into the thing. But yeah, it was about being in the Welsh borders and, and dog stealing salmon and stuff. It was a very verbose and flowery oh, wow. uh, thing that I wrote. But I just thought 
there's a bit of surrealism creeping in, I guess, at that stage. But yeah, I, again, it was just that normalness, that knowing that a sent in error email would be a normal thing that happens. So right, let's let's present that normal thing and hide inside it. That's where you're going after a high profile target. As David said at the beginning, you know, billions of emails every day, only a percentage percentage of those are, are spear phishing emails. The other are sort of like the old Nigerian prince scam. Mm. It's the opposite to what you were doing. They were deliberately having spelling mistakes. It, it almost was too far fetched for anybody to believe. And the yeah. reason for that is the scam call centers couldn't cope with the influx. And what they were trying to do is profile their market down to people that met a level of gullibility that would allow them to be further scammed. I remember them coming on the mobile phone uh, back in the day, back in the Nokia. And <laughs> I remember thinking, that's funny. And I sent it to my brother. And about two hours later, he, <laughs> he rang up and said, who was that guy? I, I rang him and <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I was going, did you not know it was a scam? So, and they profiled you, which is, is something else. So I think what you have here is, is a perfect example of, you know, having the right tools, the right level of sophistication for different audiences of, of citizen. And it just goes to show when you're at the top of the, the, the sort of the apex, the type of people going to target you is going to be all that more sophisticated. Yeah, definitely. In a malicious use case, it would be very unlikely they'd want to carry out a tactic against a, a singular CEO. As, as you all know, they think, well, right, let's make this a bit more like a horoscope so it seems like it's personal it's got this a little bit more genericness to it and let's hit 20 ceos today and let's hit 50 ceos tomorrow with the same thing and it does change your mindset like you say when you've, you've, you've decided on one definitive target there's a good chance of all that time that you've invested being wasted and scammers don't like that you know they wouldn't like to do bits of osin and, and all this stuff and set up accounts and send it off and you don't even know if it's going to get delivered and this was the thing with the banks and i think this is why the media picked up on it so much the the, the first thing you think is that why haven't they stopped these fake emails from coming through? And it's like, haha, well, it's not that easy. I, I don't think it's necessarily, oh, they were stupid enough to, to, to believe these emails. I think it's like, oh my God, I can't believe a bank or I can't believe the White House lets these emails through. They just presume at the very apex of security, it, it won't be possible. It's not, you know, a global problem that we have with email. So how about we turn the conversation? I mean, I, I think, the things that we've established already is why email is such an incredibly useful tool, this weapon for fraudsters, because of the reasons that you spoke about, the ability to establish those relationships, to mimic a tone of voice, to do the kind of spear phishing angle that Robbie spoke of, and about the, you know, you speak about your Morgan Stanley attack there, the way that you were able to use some of the conventions of email in a way, you know, in terms of sending something to the wrong person as a way in. Th these are all things that make email one of these ideal channels for fraudsters. So from a, a mitigation point of view now, it's kind of like, you know, from what we've learned, let's try and apply that to try and protect our workforces. We see lots of cyber awareness campaigns based around simulated email and phishing attacks. But something I'd like to kick off on on this line is the human response to getting something wrong, to, to clicking on, on a link in an email or opening an attachment. It can be that they are ashamed, that they are 
embarrassed and because of that human emotion they might not want to open up and tell people about it and we see that in fraud don't we where we know that the volume of crime reported it's a fraction of that that is actually committed because in part people are too embarrassed to come forward to report it so Robbie, from an awareness point of view, how do you reconcile this shame, this embarrassment to getting something wrong with email awareness campaigns that are designed to try and help people to get things right? What's interesting about the experiences that James has had is that he is targeting the CEO of Mm. global banks and then also the president of the United States, So you would expect that they would have the best security perimeters and and advice that known to man, yet you were able to achieve the result that you wanted. And I think it has got to do with the fact that once you put your mind to it, and and it is an intelligent play, then that recipient requires probably a different type of awareness training than say someone who is working on on the factory floor or is in the office, they're under a different type of attack. And if you were then to say, well, what areas of my user population is under attack? Well, you have the finance department clearly because they handle the money, but you also have the executive level, this level that James is involved in. And why? Because that's another piece of leverage by exploiting my my privilege here and using that person or coming from that person, I can use their power to maybe move things along, to get people to react to an email from the boss. Uh, And hence, you know, you have people looking to take part in uh, being delighted that they're asked to take part in swimming competitions and, and, and stuff like that. So I actually think that when it comes to an awareness perspective, you have to train your particular type of audience for the particular types of threats. I don't see CEOs necessarily falling for your mass phishing. And I think if you were to do your uh, Gmail attack now, you wouldn't get through because most organizations would automatically have, you know, personal emails uh, banned otherwise by exception. So you'd have to go and set up a domain and create unique emails for that particular scam. I did that when I went back to the White House after after I, I first had success there and, and tricked five or six people. I then went back a month later. It's how cocky I was at the time using my email prankster.co.uk domain name. No, uh, just doing really? display name deceptions and, and Sarah Sanders, oh, you know, communications director at the time, she was replying to stuff. And so it's still nothing had changed. And I, I guess that's what got me at the time that. I thought there would be this, I don't yeah. know, people running around and pulling levers and, 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 you know, changing software settings and stuff like that. It was especially true as well with the first person I tricked being the head of Homeland Security. And, and then three or four <laughs> days later, I was tricking other people that were in the administration with the same character. So yeah. perhaps as you touched on there, the embarrassment of him knowing that, because he must have known, because he stopped replying at one point, he must have known yeah. that. He'd been caught out. He, he you know, he'd, he'd responded and said he was going to come to Jared Kushner's party. He gave out his personal email address. That kind of locked him down, I think, and made him think, you know, I'm just going to pretend this didn't happen. And the problem there, James, is that, again, that audience, that executive audience, take public humiliation very, very badly. And yeah. I think the reactions that you got, which essentially led to you losing your job, is A, that the CEO in, in your previous employment 
would have related to that embarrassment, would have related to the peer outside reputational damage to his, to the company. But I think it's one of those things that people who are responsible for information security have to handle very delicately because quite simply, if they were more accommodating to learning, then you could do these uh, simulated phishing on them or these type of cons on them to show them just how easy it is. If we thought that that was going to result in a positive program for the business, that's what you would do. But we all know that actually putting a simulated fish out to the board, which you could create one that you would know quite that you would get the majority of them to click through and then they would have a you know hand in the head moment. You know, why did you click on that link? You're running the risk that uh, you might get a negative reaction and it might not contribute to your program of moving the engagement and moving the risk profile of the organization forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Bearing all of this in mind then, just to try and wrap up some loose ends and provide some takeaways for people who are listening and going, oh God, I don't know if our security department or our workforce is necessarily up to either benign email pranksters like James or, or some of the more malicious ones that, as, as we know from the stats, are, are certainly out there. What kind of things can we do, bearing in mind the embarrassment, the shame and all the rest of that, what kind of things can you do from a, a security awareness campaign perspective to get people engaged and on-site, to get, to get them to understand the challenge, even when there is potential for individual failure. James, I'll, I'll come to you first of all, kind of like fast forward to where you're at right now in terms of your email awareness piece. What's the advice that you give now to try and help workforces make sure their staff are acting as responsibly as possible around email? Yeah, and I think it's tricky because logic dictates that if you want to train people to protect themselves or, or to see how your employees um, and colleagues react to a threat that comes in, then you, you use real threats and you, you use the, the worst of the real threats. But mm. the, the problem with that is it needs a certain amount of care and it needs a certain amount of maturity, I think, in, in the program before you can kind of do that. And you need to be aware that, as we kind of touched on, that if you're tricking somebody, you, you're creating a situation where somebody's going to fail, somebody might yeah. feel embarrassed. But there's also the other side from it as well, that if you're sat there at your terminal about to send out a fish and you haven't thought through, right, I'm sending this, say, from HR, and I'm going to say that there's going to be a pay increase or something. Until the employee knows that's a trick, that's real. This is the kind of thing that we're doing here. This is the power of it, that you've actually used your own internal trust. <laughs> Scammers would steal HR's trust, but you're kind of borrowing it uh, and mm. using it internally. And, and that could be very dangerous. A company is a huge organism. You don't know if people have requested pain increases and stuff and just been denied it and things like this. And yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of potential feelings to, to kind of manage, I guess, especially if you want people to think, you know, security is good and it's on their side and it's trying to help them. If you suddenly look like you're using your own internal trust to, to go, haha, you fell for this, now watch this video you know, it, it can end up a, yeah. a bit problematic. And and we've seen it spill out occasionally in, into the media, a few of these tricks. And in some respects, people could screen grab that now, not being annoyed at it and use that as a weapon to try and get back at you. So yeah, there is a kind of, we need to do as the scammers do, but we also need to understand that we're never going to have that ex exact 
dynamic because the minute they open it, it's from us. <laughs> We've sent it every time. The scammer has not sent it, and there isn't that annoyance at criminality. There isn't that annoyance at you know good versus bad. There's just that I've been tricked, and you've tricked me by saying this thing. And if it's something that benefits me in my outside life, you know, health and wealth generally, yeah, that can be a problem. Robbie, what's your take on responsible but effective email security awareness campaigns? I think James uh, touched on it there. I think it's got to do with the maturity of your organization. It takes time, right? To send out a simulated fish to your user population and have a high failure rate actually is relatively straightforward. You just have to make the, the simulated fish like a real email as possible and have a, a bit of truth in it and you know it comes from hr and it's a time of year i think that that's not really the objective the objective is not to prove how stupid everybody is and i think you have to see using simulated phishing as part of an overall tool bag i think one of the great things about simulated uh, phishing is you can use it to actually get measurements of where you are if someone falls for a fish instead of taking them to like a learning moment or a learning experience, what you do is, you know, it's, it comes up a 404 error or, or, or something like that, that they, they don't even pass any comment, but you know that they have fallen for it. I guess it's non-judgmental, isn't it? It's non-judgmental, but it allows you to track over time whether you're, you're making progress. So again, like J James said, focus on the training. So I'm training you on these type of fish. Please don't fall for them. Here's the training, train, 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 and then test. If they fail, hey, guys, you failed here. But people know that this is part of an ongoing evolution of education. I think using simulated phishing on its own as a training tool is asking a bit much of the technology. It is effective. I click on the link and immediately I'm, I learned something. I learned that I've just fallen for something. It comes up and tells me what I should have looked for. I, I again, think you have to take time. It takes you know, one or two, three years to build up a level of maturity, you definitely wouldn't overuse it in a regular way in year one, because you'll just fatigue your users. You'll turn people off to the technology and to the, the way of working. And I think it has to be part of an overall engagement program where you're trying lots of things and people sort of see this culture of security being moved by by the executive and being moved by the company. And so it'll fit in nicely there, but on its own, it can be a bit trying for people. Measurement, not embarrassment. Don't yes. go in too hard too early and think of it as part of a longer game, a longer program there. And so you need to be strategic, not tactical. My Christmas card list did not increase after the pranks. Uh, <laughs> I made no friends from it, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Gentlemen, we are out of time for today. Really good conversation. Really, really enjoyed hearing your story, James, and uh, and so many takeaways from that. Where can people find out more about about your work, the the stuff that you have done, and the stuff the the, the good stuff that you're doing now in this area? LinkedIn's probably the place I spend most time. Search for James Linton. Or you can search for James Linton on Google. I am king of the James Lintons. I am dominating. <laughs> I'm the number one James Linton in the world. Until yeah. some SEO prankster comes along and starts siphoning off. <laughs> 
Robbie, I'm sure if somebody were to Google cybersecurity awareness for dummies, they would land on your book. What does that have to say about email awareness? I think what we focus on is the real day-to-day business of getting people engaged with this topic. And you can follow us on our website, metacompliance.com, on LinkedIn, and also on Instagram. We take an amusing approach to cybersecurity that I think people might appreciate and is more along the lines of what James did in the prankster side of things. Well, listen, again, James, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, no, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. And Robbie, thank you too. As always, David, a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you all for joining us. We'll be back soon. Until then, bye-bye.